0: Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where the Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office is currently working to identify an elf on a shelf who met a tragic end in Metairie on Monday, December 17th, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, where you can spend Sundays with Santa at the Capitol Hotel. Thank you for joining us for episode 33 State of Wisconsin versus Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey. On October 31st, 2005, photographer Teresa Halbach disappeared after photographing a van at the Avery Salvage Yard in Manitowoc County, Wisconsin. Over the course of several days, the case changed from a search for a missing person to a homicide case when Teresa's vehicle, camera, cell phone, PDA and burned bones were found near Stephen Avery's Avery's trailer from the beginning Avery claimed that all of the evidence against him was planted by Manawak County employees to sabotage Avery's lawsuit against the county its former sheriff and county prosecutor arising from his 1985 uh, rape and attempted murder conviction we're joined tonight by Kenneth Kratz the former Calumet County Prosecutor who tried the cases against Avery and his nephew Brandon Daffy? Mr. Kratz is the author of Avery, the case against Stephen Avery, and what Making a Murderer Gets Wrong. We'll be talking about Teresa's disappearance, her murder, the investigation, the evidence against, evidence against Avery, Dassey's confession, and the backlash Mr. Kratz has experienced since the release of Making a Murderer. We're a live show, and as always, Calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael and Mr. Kratz. And do we still have Laura on the line?
1: I believe Laura is actually on the uh, on hold right now. We actually, our call board here is lighting up. We actually have another call that just joined. <laughs> but uh, okay uh, obviously, a very uh, interesting case going on here as far as uh, Mr. Avery goes, uh, based upon some of the stuff that we already discussed beforehand with uh, Miss Laura. Lots of feelings in this thing uh, going forward as far as, you know, uh, what happened and things of that nature and what should have been yeah. left out and what wasn't and things like that.
0: Well, as, as Mr. Kratz said, he and, and Mr. Strang had an agreement that they weren't going to make that vibrator public, or the fact that they would found one, that she owned one. Um, well, not that there's anything wrong with it, but, I mean, I, you know, I, I, it's an intimate, private thing. Right. And it doesn't need to be broadcast as part of, you know, her murder case. Um, and I think, as oh. I was about to say before the show started... Um, you you didn't have a body. You did not have Teresa's intact body. So you had no blood, no fluids, no hair, nothing that could be used as an exemplar to say this DNA belongs to Teresa Hallbach. So you had to go and get the pap smear. And the reason you get the pap smear is it's linked to Teresa. It's kept in the normal course of business. And it has epithelial cells that carry her nuclear DNA. Right. That's one of the few times a woman has a, you know, a medical examination where that kind of evidence is, is kept.
1: Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Mr. Kratz, Mr.
0: Kratz had a comment.
1: uh, Mm hmm. Mr. Kratz is on the line. Definitely. And if you want to finish Explaining that real quick, uh, Laura's still on hold listening to the show now. You most certainly can, Mr. Kratz.
2: Well, I I thank you very much, and, and good evening, by the way. I suspect
1: your other listeners
2: don't have any idea what we're talking about because it should have just been Laura and I on the phone. I don't know that everybody was, was privy to that, right. to that conversation, which also – The
0: initial – I, I apologize. The initial conversation was not over the air. Good. And okay. I apologize,
2: what, that what, was... What, uh, Lisa? Uh, but it's out there, so... A- Lisa, I prefer that you not apologize, yeah. and it begs the question as to why we're talking about this right now. This isn't part of the case. It isn't something that we should be discussing. It's not relevant to the case. We've got two hours' worth of relevant material, and where intimate samples came from or why we agreed not to talk about them, it certainly defeats the purpose if we're going to sit here and talk about it, right, Lisa? So let's right. uh, let's move on to a topic that is more relevant. And please ask whatever questions you want. I'm happy. I'm happy to answer whatever you have. All right. Well,
0: um, as I sent you the outline, let's talk about uh, mm-hmm. initially Stephen Avery and his background, because in Making a Murder, there's a lot of sanitizing, not only of his background but I think his character in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very controlling and, and violent with girlfriends and wives and not that didn't always lead to criminal charges but it was behavior that, that he exhibited and like it or not it can be a predictor of future escalation of violence toward women so um, if you'd like to talk about that that would be great
2: I'd be happy to, you know, prior to um, going into court on the uh, the murder charge, we had filed a motion with the court, which is called an other acts motion, which asked the court to admit evidence of prior wrongdoing by um, a defendant. In this case, Mr. Avery had uh, some prior, what we believed were relevant behaviors that we wanted to tell the jury about. Those included, uh, his uh, prior convictions um, his um, you know pointing a, a, a loaded weapon at um, at a woman when he uh, when he ran her off the road including violence towards women his uh, former wife and his uh, and his uh, girlfriend at the time uh, his uh, burning of a cat uh, which uh, we believed uh, showed um, his um, uh, Violence, uh, and, and as, uh, as you mentioned, we won't go too deep into this, but the precursor to uh, many uh, violence against uh, human cases uh, begin uh, earlier in somebody's life with uh, violence towards animals, and so that certainly is relevant information. We believed it to be relevant. Uh, judge Willis, who is the trial judge, uh, disagreed. Uh, the trial court denied all nine of our other acts motions and uh, didn't allow any of that uh, other kind of, of information. By other information, we're talking about Avery having uh, drawn uh, a diagram of a torture chamber that he intended to build while he was in prison for those 18 years. He had uh, told uh, other inmates that he intended to abduct and to rape and torture and kill young women. And so uh, when he actually did that, uh, the fact that he announced those plans several years earlier in the Wisconsin prison system seemed very relevant uh, to, uh, to the state. But again, the, uh, the court did not let that in. Avery also, while he was in prison, told other inmates that the best way to dispose of a body is to burn it. Uh, we believed that that was relevant under the circumstances, and that wasn't allowed into evidence. And so the kind of, of uh, extraneous or uh, or outside information uh, about, uh, about Mr. Avery was uh, pretty much kept from the juror. Uh, I understand that ruling. I understand why courts uh, tend to do that. They want the decision of a jury based upon the evidence that's presented, the relevant evidence on the case that they're being charged with. And, of course, there's a risk of uh, bringing up prior information and, and prejudicing a jury or at least having uh, a jury uh, give undue weight to uh, those other kinds of, uh, of behaviors that really uh, don't uh, talk about what happened on the 31st of October 2005. And so uh, the court kept us very focused on uh, what it was that we were to present and that the jury then uh, decided the case really on, um, on on very relevant and and only uh, evidence that uh, that was associated with this crime. you know Stephen Avery is not a uh, a boy scout. Uh, he did have that past, he did uh, and did ex- 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 um, quite clearly exhibit uh, violence uh, towards women, his former wife, his former girlfriend. Um, they all had uh, indicated that they were lucky to have left that relationship alive, and that uh, they right. believed that if they stayed in that relationship with Mr. Avery, that that they would have uh, been met with uh, with harm or uh, or worse uh, having come to them. So, um, for uh, making a murderer, whether it's the first season or the second season, to portray this guy as uh, being Kind of cuddly or or not being uh, not being violent is really a disservice to um, to all that we've learned about uh, about Stephen Avery um, that the um, uh, the filmmakers uh, believed that they needed to uh, kind of clean this guy up or clean up his image or clean up his prior behaviors at least uh, so that the audience would uh, be able to accept their presentation except their narrative that they presented about Stephen Avery that is that uh, he was unjustly accused and and ultimately unjustly convicted for uh, for this murder and I think that's uh, that's a shame that they did that
0: yeah and and they they doing it to make it look like he's been unjustly accused his entire life and the cops were always out to get him um, so yeah, that that's quite transparent. In fact, even more transparent in making a murderer than it was in Paradise Lost, which was about the West Memphis Three. So um, and they want viewers to relate and sympathize with him. And um, now, do you know anything? And you may not. Uh, what was his role at Avery Salvage once he came back in 2003? Was well, he, he running the show? as an equal partner, no. or was he just? No. no, he
2: worked. He worked for. Uh, I believe his uh, uh, his brother uh, Chuck uh, was the main proprietor, uh, but uh, the other brother Earl uh, worked at uh, at the salvage property. Certainly, uh, the mother and father um, helped out. It was a family business, like many family businesses, mm-hmm. and everybody kind of uh, kind of pitches in. and, and Stephen was uh, was employed, I believe. On a full time basis at the at the salvage yard and and did everything from you know crushing cars to uh, other things that would would happen at a salvage yard so um, you know it was uh, not only the place that he lived, this compound that all these uh, family members lived on, but it was also their their place of employment. What you also have to realize Lisa, is that this was a uh, an active uh, you know, open business uh, all of the time. And so when I get asked questions like, why didn't Avery crush the car that uh, uh, that they had uh, uh, found earlier, that it would have been easy to just uh, have crushed it and not all this evidence would have been found, and that's true, uh, except when you realize that uh, Stephen didn't have an opportunity uh, to crush uh, the car until Saturday, the 5th of November, 2005, uh, he and other family members had gone up north to a family cottage and he was scheduled <laughs> to return the afternoon of, of Saturday the same afternoon uh, uh, the same day I should say that the, uh, the vehicle was found by citizen searchers in the Avery Salvage yard and so uh, the simple answer is he just didn't have an opportunity yet uh, to have crushed the car if this car wouldn't have been found that morning by the citizen searchers that is the morning of uh, Saturday, Saturday the 5th he very well may have gotten away with murder and so that's something that uh that you know we thought of uh, a a great deal that he came very very close uh to uh having this crime never solved
0: and as i understand it and i could be wrong you can't put a full car into a crusher with the engine and all the interior and everything in the car that doesn't really. That works in the movies. It works on TV shows, but it doesn't really work in real life. You're supposed to take the engine block out, tires and things off, because if you try to cut, crush a an intact car, it's not going to work very well.
3: Well, so there's the a other process that, You
0: have to go through draining the fluids and all those things, and he didn't have time to do that.
2: Two of the other things is you have to do. None, is none to of that had batter- been done. You have to take the battery out. You have to take the the gas tank out and so there is prep work that is required. Uh, it isn't uh, as, as you've said uh, just a, a, a quick thing but he was prepared to do that and he was all set in fact he had crushed two other vehicles Stephen had crushed two other vehicles two days earlier on Thursday the, uh, the 3rd of November and those two crushed vehicles were left still in the crusher as if a third vehicle was to be placed on top of it, we believe that uh, was to be the SUV of uh, of Teresa and then maybe another car or two on top of that, kind of a car sandwich, if you can kind of picture that, how these Mm -hmm. uh, crushed crushed cars are. And if uh, Teresa's SUV was in the middle of several other crushed cars, uh, it may very well have been removed from that property without law enforcement ever having been the wiser. And so that's why I mentioned that it was such a uh, a fortunate event um, that uh, Teresa's SUV was found at about 1030 on Saturday morning, the 5th of November.
0: Correct. And then on Brendan Dassey's background, I mean, there's not a whole lot. he was born while Avery was in prison. That's correct. Right. So he yeah, would have so he, wouldn't have even met Avery, and I think Bobby
2: as well yeah but 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 only until uh Stephen you know got out of prison in um in two thousand and three, and so um Avery um developed a close relationship with Brendan Dassey, his nephew, uh, he and Brendan would do a lot of things together, he was somewhat of a mentor, I believe. Uh, the evidence showed uh, to Brendan they would hang out together and you would invite Brendan over to help him when he had uh, chores or other uh, or other things to do. We know that on October 31st he invited Brendan over that they cleaned the garage together with, uh, with a lot of bleach and a lot of uh, other fluids, uh, cleaning up what Brendan described as a dark reddish brown liquid on the garage. We know that all was blood and we know that the bleach that was used to clean the garage um, was uh, splashed up onto Brendan's jeans, which he turned over to law enforcement, which law enforcement seized. You know, they talk about there not being any physical evidence that uh, establishes or that corroborates uh, Brendan's um, involvement. That's just not true at all. Uh, The jeans that he was wearing that had all this bleach splashed on it uh, which both he and his mother identified he wore that evening—that is, the evening of, of Teresa's death on the 31st of, uh, of October—did uh, did show that uh, that bleach uh, was all splashed on it, and so that uh, that and other things uh, corroborated very well what it was that uh, Brendan had told the officers during his interview. Correct.
0: That is something that's not uh the genes are not mentioned, I think maybe mentioned in passing one time but not connected to yeah, his
2: his statement. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so well, you know, and um and so you know, there's that and then when when the uh, uh Brendan acknowledged that Stephen had gone under uh, the hood of the car um and uh or the SUV uh, that uh, officers thereafter, um, I mean, this is into the spring of 2006, um, they swabbed the uh, hoodlatch of the SUV, and of course they found uh, Stephen Avery's uh, DNA on the hoodlatch. You know, the reason mm-hmm. that Making a Murderer doesn't ever even address that in their first season is because they didn't have an answer for it. It doesn't fit their narrative. There's nothing about this uh, Stephen Avery's uh, being set up, or that he's a nice guy. Uh, there's no way to explain how his DNA got underneath a car hood. Again, you can only get to that hood latch if you're on the inside of the SUV and you pop the trunk uh, with the mm. uh, the latch release. and Thereafter, you have to reach up underneath uh, the trunk, uh, or excuse me, the hood, uh, to uh, to get to that hood latch, and so. The fact that Avery's DNA is on that hood latch, since it couldn't have been planted from the outside, it isn't something that you can, um, uh, you know, that you can just walk by a vehicle and plant. You have to mm-hmm. manipulate and open up the uh, the hood, and and thereafter the uh, the DNA is is deposited. So it didn't fit the narrative of uh, Miss Riccardi and Demos when they uh, when they made the first uh, season of Making a Murderer. They only mentioned it. In the second season, because it had gotten so much criticism, and, of course, uh, Attorney Zellner uh, makes up some... Has come up with um, a,
0: yeah, has come up with an explanation. about, yeah.
2: Uh, yeah, about, it's just too much. Mark like, Wiegert. Uh, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> a well, Judy somebody, swab. somebody, yeah, somebody planted it, and it's crazy. It yeah. It. It's a silly, uh, a silly explanation, you know, that that Wiegert may have uh, held on to a groin swab for five months. Uh, just in case uh, somebody someday would have... They need, well, they uh, would need his would DNA for something that, that, else, that, you know. Yeah, well, it's just crazy. It's just a nonsense uh, kind of a claim, and if it wasn't uh, such a serious case, it would, of course, uh,
3: mm-hmm.
2: be be laughable. It isn't something that uh, cops grab swabs and hang on to them for for months, especially non-Manitowoc County police officers, at least if the defense attorneys were to be believed. Right. That it was only Manitowoc that had any kind of an incentive that again. Or any kind right. of a, of a, uh, any kind of an, a, a, a reason to, to plant evidence. Not the state, not Calumet County, not other officers that were involved. So it really, it really is inconsistent with their theory that it, right. that was the police having a a, a reason, a motive, uh, in which to plant evidence. Wiegert had no motive to do that. Certainly, uh, Bill Tyson, the evidence tech. That did swab the um, the SUV had no motive or reason to uh, uh, to make up this uh, this evidence, and so once you realize that uh, those things are only made up by the defense attorneys uh, well after the fact when they sit down and say, well, what kind of possible explanation uh, could we come up with uh, to uh, to explain that his DNA is on on the hood latch if the very best they can come up with was that maybe Weaker held on to a grain swab for five months, and then he snuck that in when the evidence tech wasn't looking uh, at uh, at the swab. It uh, shows you just how incredibly weak that argument is, and that they will say anything, in my opinion, uh, in which uh, to convince people, rather than the obvious that uh, Avery touched <laughs> that. Uh, Uh, that hoodlatch, they would come up with this fantastical uh, conspiracy theory that includes uh, not only uh, Manitowoc cops, but uh, Calumet cops, state cops, uh, at least a couple of prosecutors, at least one judge that we know of, that they're claiming were all conspiring uh, in Mm -hmm. which to set this, uh, this poor guy up for this murder. And again, nobody, nobody other than what they mentioned from a Manitowoc officer perhaps would have had any motive uh, to do that. You know, cops just don't go around killing innocent 25-year-olds just so they can uh, set uh, set somebody like Avery up for, uh, for murder. You know, I would never have risked my career for some scumbag like Stephen Avery, and I can't imagine any police officer would do the same thing. So it's really insulting uh, when defense attorneys come up with this nonsense when there's no evidence that supports it.
0: And the the number of people involved it just keeps growing and growing and growing. It was first it was Coburn and Lentz, and now it's uh, uh, blank. I mean, excuse me. And now it's uh, it's Weigert, and pretty soon sh- I'm sure Miss Zellner will come up with something on Fastbender. Well,
2: and they, look, they you they, know they already and, have. Yeah, they oh they're, they did. They've already blamed they blamed everybody but Stephen Avery for. For this murder, Stephen blamed his own brothers at one time. Correct. Uh, as Correct. Being The real, the real murderers, and then we hear the it, that Bobby Bobby Dassey must be the real murderer, or Scott Taddock must be the mm-hmm. real murderer, or ex-boyfriend Ryan Hill goes or Ryan is yeah. the real murderer. It gets to the point, Lisa, that you just shake your head and you say, you know, they will blame anybody without evidence. They will abuse this system that's been set up. For post-conviction relief to blame anybody they can to disparage good cops and good prosecutors and other citizens to disparage them and uh, say that they were involved in a murder. I think it's a travesty. I think it's despicable. I think it's the kind of lawyering that uh, uh, people in our country despise, that is, lawyers just make things up to uh, to kind of fit the evidence or to kind of advance their... Uh, their narrative. We used to live in this uh, legal system where there was evidence that was necessary, that there was real proof necessary, and not just uh, allegations. But the you know advent of lawyers like uh, Michael Avenatti and 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 uh, I think uh, Zellner's cut from that exact same cloth. That you just uh, make all these outrageous claims, uh, you throw it against right. the wall, and you see you see what sticks. You see what uh, what people believe. Well. When you're talking about killing a young woman and you're talking about accusing people of being involved in a murder, uh, that's not good enough. You don't just say things because it might sound good or might uh, be a, a desperate publicity stunt. You better have some evidence when you're accusing people of having a committed a murder. You better have something other than your elbows to put on the table when you're making those kind of accusations. And as Zalma, we know none of it. She has zero evidence, zero new evidence. Zero old evidence, zero any kind of evidence that would suggest anybody other than Stephen Avery was involved. And I hope someday she's very much held accountable for what she's done to these uh, these people that she's accused of all this misconduct.
0: Correct. And and there's a scene in Making a Murder, too, where she and her investigator are talking about actually trying to more or less coerce Scott Blodorn into talking to them he doesn't want to talk to them. And I think people don't realize you don't have an obligation to uh, cooperate with a defense attorney trying to free someone who's been convicted of murder. And yet they try and make it seem like he has an obligation to help them. Otherwise, they're going to drag his name through the mud. Mm-hmm. Those weren't their exact words, but that's... That's the, uh, you know, that's the inference that I drew from it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and, I, and I'm sure you're probably familiar with Al Story Simon, who was actually coerced into making a false confession by a, an invest- investigator working to free a guilty
2: man. Right. Well, that. you know, uh, the
0: so... –
2: the... go ahead.
0: Uh, so, so that's, you know, it, it's it's reprehensible. Especially when they claim to be doing it for the good, and they're right. doing the same things they accuse police of doing.
2: Right. So many of the tactics that was used, just for your listeners' uh, edification, there was a uh, a person in Illinois who was convicted of a uh, double homicide. His name was Antonio Porter, uh, and he was sentenced to death when they uh, still had the death penalty in um, in Illinois. There were a bunch of um, journalism students from the Northwestern University School uh, under the uh, direction of one of their uh, professors, whose last name was Protest, who uh, accused another person uh, of having committed a murder that Mr. Uh, Porter was about to be executed for. They presented uh, evidence, if you can call it that, to um, to the court, and they won Mr. Porter his freedom. It turned out, though, that when they did just a modicum of investigation uh, into what happened, that it was clear that they had uh, coerced a uh, a man uh, from Milwaukee whose name was Al Story Simon into confessing uh, to this uh, cr- excuse me crime. They had uh, promised him uh, money and book deals and uh, and other things. They had encouraged L. Story Simon's um, ex-wife uh, to have uh, said that she knew that he was uh, involved in the case. They got an actor to pretend on a videotape that he had witnessed L. Story Simon uh, do this, and they used this fake interview and showed that to L. Story Simon and, uh, in order to coerce him into uh, into making these statements. And all this is chronicled in a... A documentary which is called A Murder in the Park. It's on Netflix. It's something that I would encourage your listeners to watch. It 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 introduces, I think, the first time that I've seen it, this uh, this concept of innocence fraud. Uh, that is uh, when uh, defense attorneys or innocence projects or uh, or or anybody kind of on that side of the aisle, uh, when they uh, get together uh, evidence, true or not. Uh, and they present it uh, to uh, a magistrate, uh, don't tell them all of uh, the things that you had found, but just uh, present the uh, cherry pick, if you will, present those things that uh, might uh, comment or, or or bring doubt uh, to a, a conviction. You know, Governor Ryan uh, at the time, and, and just completing the Al-Story Simon uh, case, uh, before he even reviewed any of the evidence or before the uh, the DA's office even got a chance to refute any of this. Uh, Governor Ryan uh, signed Mr. Porter's uh, clemency; uh, he uh, commuted his death sentence. In fact, it was the case that uh, Governor Ryan used to abolish the death penalty altogether in Illinois, mm-hmm. citing that if if they could get this wrong, uh, then they could get any of their cases wrong. Well, what we know now is that these um, that these students, whether they were Acting in good faith or not, uh, did provide false information, knowingly false information to uh, to get uh, Mr. Porter uh, his uh, his commutation of his sentence and his uh, off death row, and eventually his clemency. Uh, he was released <laughs> altogether. Uh, and uh, and you know, cases like that are are so so difficult for the justice system to. Uh, to keep track of uh, because, you know, after a case is over, uh, there aren't the original prosecutors anymore. There aren't uh, people that know the evidence, uh, you know, inside and out, uh, as you would need to do to, uh, to refute some of these kind of things that are, that are brought up. And so the opportunity that, uh, uh, in this case, uh, uh, some students had uh, to misrepresent uh, the facts to a court and to get uh, get this man uh uh exonerated was uh, was just, you know, too easy. It was too easy to yeah. go into court and to and to only present uh some uh, some deceptive facts and and get this guy released. At the very least, governors or others that are asked to act on these cases have to do so not just upon media accounts or or not just upon uh, you know uh, the public kind of clamoring for it. Uh, they have to make sure that investigations uh, are looked into, that these things are done correctly. You know these uh, these convictions. A great deal of of time and energy is put into building those cases and to presenting them to a jury. And, it, and as I mentioned, it's such a disservice to uh, to the families of the victims and to the whole justice system. Really, if uh, something as easy as a stroke of a pen. Uh, by some, uh, uh, you know, leaning governor or, or somebody who, who simply wants to uh, 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 cure a perceived uh, wrong that's done, you know, it's it's more likely than not uh, that more harm is going to be done under those circumstances than um, than actually, uh, you know, in the courts or, or things like that. So uh, I am very, very skeptic, skeptical about uh, the use of clemency or the use of, Executive pardons uh, to to solve these because uh, just like we've seen in the uh, the Anthony Porter uh, or Anthony Porter case, um, these things are done uh, more often uh, without a search for the truth, but simply advocating for one side or another. In this case, advocating for uh, the person who's on death row, and and uh, too often. I think uh, uh, political um, uh, considerations or, uh, 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 or something other than legal considerations are used to, um, uh, to um, achieve these, uh, these uh, pardons or these executive clemency uh, cases. And I think it's a high time that this whole concept of uh, innocence fraud be looked at on a, a larger scale. Uh, And I hope that uh, in the years to come, there's going to be a lot more attention and a lot more care uh, taken uh, as we now see, unfortunately, some lawyers and some uh, uh, activists have demonstrated a willingness to provide knowingly false information in which to achieve somebody's um, uh, exoneration. Uh, I don't. Right. Uh, I don't have any qualms at all saying that's exactly what Kathleen Zellner appears to be doing. She appears to be presenting uh, what has to be uh, knowingly uh, either false information or, uh, or 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 evidence that is not complete at all uh, when she now presents it as uh, as having uh, established or or gone anywhere. Uh, to establishing that Stephen Avery was wrongfully convicted. Uh, he was not. There is no evidence that points to that. Uh, I think any um, fair-minded legal analyst that's looked at this case says that uh, Kathleen Zellner's motions recently filed are a joke. Uh, they're mm-hmm. all based on uh, a junk science at the very best uh, and outright lies at uh, at the worst. And as I and mentioned speculation in your show well as I mentioned is uh, it's high time uh, that attorneys like Kathleen Zellner be held accountable for these kind of outrageous claims that they're that they're made and that when they're unsuccessful and they're just kind of allowed to kind of traipse off into the into the wilderness and nobody calls them on it uh, it's not going to happen in this case uh, yeah. what's going to happen is that uh, her claims are going to be Analyze. There's too many people watching. There's too many people that know the facts now for her to get away with this. And I don't think uh, we've heard uh, uh, the end uh, of the criticisms uh, that justly will we'll come down on Kathleen Zellner. Yeah.
0: Hopefully, your mouth to God's ear. I mean, as some of it is unethical, at least in my opinion, and that's I, I wish there was more that could be done with, you know, Illinois Bar. Of course, I know Illinois Bar, I mean, you can kill somebody and probably not be disbarred.
2: <laughs> They're not a well, real proactive enforcement. I have no information the, about the Illinois Bar. and So we'll see. Uh, and Whether it's the Bar Association or a court that she has made these Uh, These claims in front of, you know, the Wisconsin court, uh, she she filed this 1,200-page motion, and the Wisconsin court took about seven pages to throw her out of court, saying this is all nonsense. None of it is new evidence. It certainly isn't anything uh, to even get you a hearing, much less a new trial on the case. And so I'm not sure how many times Kathleen Zellner needs to be thrown out of court before people start seeing and seeing this scam for what it is. Correct. Um, And, you know,
0: another topic that I wanted to cover with you, when you talk about people being held accountable, with making making a murderer and making a murderer too, there are people who are being held accountable and harassed and threatened, including yourself. For things you didn't even do because of the perception that Making a Murder gives of you and Sergeant Colburn, Lieutenant Lenk, mm-hmm. Mr. Fassbender, Mr. Wiegert.
2: I want to talk about that. Okay. Well, what Making a Murder uh, did is, is they cast villains, and they, they, uh, they made an editorial decision to cast myself. As a villain, they blame me. Even in the second uh, series, uh, they say that uh, this is the one person responsible for this travesty of justice, and they name me. You know, I'm the one attorney not involved in the case anymore. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, I'm not doing the, any of the appeals. I'm not uh, working on the case. Uh, two of the prosecutors that w- did work on the original case are still involved uh, heavily in in the case. Uh, 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 Mr. Strang and Buting are being criticized by attorney Zellner now is being so incompetent such incompetent mm-hmm. defense attorneys that they didn't even provide the lowest level of assistance. You know, they were paid apparently two hundred and forty thousand dollars by mister Avery and attorney Zellner is claiming uh, that they didn't even do as good a job as a you know a public defender or a Um, uh, uh, or another lawyer who wasn't getting that kind of a paycheck uh, would have done. That, of course, is nonsense. These were two of the best defense attorneys in Wisconsin. They remain two of the best defense attorneys in Wisconsin. They have been applauded and hailed by all kinds of legal experts on the job that they did in this case. And for Attorney Zellner then to say, you know, you were so incompetent uh, that you didn't even provide this man a, uh, a, a, a competent defense uh, for his his case, I think, I think shows you the extent to which uh, this attorney will go uh, to blame everybody but her client. They've mm-hmm. uh, blamed everybody for the offense, and now they're blaming all the lawyers. Uh, they blame the prosecutor. They blame the judge. They, you know, it's 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 laughable uh, that they'll throw everybody under the bus rather than look at the uncontroverted physical evidence. When they look at things like uh, uh, Teresa's uh, phone and camera and PDA having been burned by Stephen Avery in his own burn barrel, that's never mentioned once in Making a Murderer 1, never mentioned once in Making a Murderer 2, still mm-hmm. not mentioned by Zellner, still has no explanation If all of these other people set this up, how was it that Teresa's phone and camera are burned in Stephen's own burn barrel when he was the person observed by two witnesses on the 31st of October burning in that very own burn barrel? How do you explain her camera and her PDA and her phone ending up burned in that burn barrel? Because they don't have an explanation for that, Lisa, what they do is they just ignore it. They hope that, uh, yeah. that the audience won't know those facts. They won't realize that they have been uh, 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 denied seeing one of the most important pieces of physical evidence that uh, points to Stephen Avery's guilt. So what they choose to do is simply hide that from the audience. When you realize that they are willing to hide that kind of evidence From the audience, anybody who watches, any of the purported 40 million people who watch this should be really, really angry, not at the cops or not at the lawyers, but they should be really angry at these filmmakers for having fooled them. You know, it's easier, much, much easier to fool somebody than to convince them that they've been fooled. And so what's happening in this case is uh, maybe 40 million people have been fooled. Uh, and I'm trying to convince all these people that they've been fooled. I provide trial transcripts and, and solid evidence and and things that are uncontroverted in which to do it, yet still millions and millions of people would rather believe that uh, all this evidence was planted or that uh, 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 law enforcement conspired against this guy uh, to get him to uh, to be convicted of murder uh, when, in fact, there's all this evidence that points to it, and so uh it may go down as the most deceptively edited uh piece of entertainment in in history, at least those that call themselves documentaries uh It is so deceptively uh presented uh as to have almost no um, uh, uh, reality to what was presented to the jury in these cases you know many of the, mm-hmm. the media folks that sat through the original trial said when they watched making a murder they thought they were looking at a different case they even looked like the same case that was being presented because it was so um so deceptively misrepresented for for the audience and it's a travesty and not only did these filmmakers not get called to task for these shenanigans that they pulled but they were given four emmy awards uh, for having uh, created this, including one for what's called creative editing, which I think is the uh, the biggest insult to injury that you could uh, that you could uh, present. Why isn't the documentary film industry itself screaming foul? Why aren't they saying you can't lie to people, you can't present evidence that's simply made up out of whole cloth? Uh, yet they seem to protect their own. They don't want to call out these filmmakers for whatever reason. Uh, they simply want to allow this kind of uh, this kind of nonsense to uh, uh, to uh, to be skated through as a documentary. And, and again, I, I'm hoping before this whole process is completed that it will be the filmmakers and will be those that uh, involve themselves in the creation of this farce uh, to be accountable for all of the. Innocent lives that uh, they've now uh, Destroyed and, and I lost The law firm in the process uh, Andy Colburn lost his good reputation uh, Jim Link lost uh, His reputation uh, The Halbach family has uh, been Forced to relive uh, these, uh, these nightmares uh, All under this, the, uh, the guise of entertainment All under uh, this, uh, this, uh, this Duo, this filmmaking duo uh, that was uh, a film students at the time that they uh, set out to, to start this process. And after 10 years uh, of deceptive editing, they finally uh, put together this project that makes it look like, uh, like this poor man was, uh, was wrongfully convicted that we know now uh, is not true. And I'm telling you what, Lisa, there's a lot of people that are owed some very big apologies by these filmmakers. And I would say, by Netflix and the entire documentary film industry for having allowed or having condoned or having sanctioned uh, this kind of, of, of documentary filmmaking where outright lies are told to the audience in which to get across their narrative. I think it's a shame, and I hope, again, eventually all this truth does come out.
0: And I, I've seen other documentaries that are, you know, Werner Herzog is very open. He says, I don't believe in the death penalty. And so his documentaries about those issues and criminal justice issues are, you know, what you're getting into. But he at least does make an effort to be somewhat objective because he does give both sides right. equal well, Transparent
2: at the, at the very least.
3: Yeah. And, and doesn't editorialize.
2: Tells, yeah, well, you shouldn't tell them, you shouldn't tell the audience whether it's. Whether it is explicitly or even implicitly, that what you're watching really happened. You know, how do you do that, Lisa? Mm-hmm. How do you how do you put a, a how do you splice together trial testimony that never happened in real life? Oh no! And tell no. And tell the audience that this stuff happened. How do you do that with a clear conscience? Right. And then and then when you're called on it, you just say, well, you know, it's just entertainment. That's what we get to do. Well, that's a bunch of crap. You don't get to do that. Yeah. You don't get to you don't get to lie about innocent cops and prosecutors and citizens uh, just to advance your story. That doesn't work out. There's consequences Correct. for that kind of behavior, and, uh, again, eventually we'll see what those consequences are.
0: And I, I think there are a lot of activists, and there, there seem to be more and more, for whom the ends justify the
2: means. Right. Well, that was certainly the El Story Simon case you know, with, uh, with Mr. Porter. Uh, the mm-hmm. the the ends there were to abolish the death penalty. That was their stated intent. Was to go after death penalty cases, and they they hit the jackpot with uh, with Porter's case um, in getting the entire uh, uh, you know uh, sentence of of death penalty uh, abolished Correct. by this governor uh, after having presented uh, what was uh, uh, deceptive and in fact. Uh, possibly knowingly false information uh, in order to achieve that end. Uh, I think it's clear that uh, that these activists will adopt that anything goes attitude. Um, I think Zellner said, "I'll never stop. I'll do anything to uh, to get this guy uh, exonerated." So when an attorney tells you, "I'll do anything uh, to achieve uh, this end," uh, you better look very very closely at what it is that they're they're telling you they want you to believe. Right So
0: all right well let's um, uh, since we're discussing the, the making a murder and some of the allegations they've made, um, we're going to move on to Avery's 2004 civil suit, which was filed uh, a civil rights violation suit filed in federal district court by Avery against Manitowoc County, former Sheriff Kassoric, and former prosecutor Dennis Vogel, uh, alleging violation of his constitutional rights from his 1985 conviction for a rape and attempted murder that they knew or should have known he did not commit, mm-hmm. and um, we know he was asking for 36 million dollars, but it's probably it's pretty unlikely that he would have gotten 36 million. He probably might have gotten a couple million. Well
2: you could ask for whatever you want. That doesn't mean that Yeah, <laughs> you're get, that doesn't mean you're gonna get it. That's your. going one to get it I I I read an article recently and I don't know that much about um, you know, after exoneration cases, but I I understood that there weren't any awards anywhere uh that uh, that called for anything more than a million dollars per year, even when these exorbitant awards come out uh, you know, to to give Avery you know, $2 million for the 18 years. Of course, mm-hmm. what you have to realize is the first, the first six years that he was incarcerated Were... was for a crime that he did commit. That was the endangering safety, that was the pointing the loaded firearm and running that woman off the road. He got six years for that. Perfect. So, because that was being served concurrently, meaning at the same time uh, as, uh, as the attempted murder uh, conviction, uh, you can say, and, and you should say, that those 6 years were for a legitimate crime that it was the last 12 which is still horrible it's not i'm not trying to make excuses but at least be honest when when you say he he spent 18 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit well that wasn't true at all the first 6 Thanks years for that. were for a crime he he did commit so at least be honest to to the audience when you're telling them what the uh, what happened it was for the 12 years that would have been over and above the advisory safety sentence, and Stephen Avery was entitled to compensation for having his constitutional rights violated. You know what's so interesting, Lisa, is that the two cops who are being accused of wrongdoing, uh, Jim Link and uh, Andy Colburn, were both of the opinion that Stephen Avery should recover money mm-hmm. from that lawsuit. They didn't care if Stephen Avery recovered money; it wasn't their money. In fact, they both said he should recover money uh, if uh, uh, if he was wronged, and and they did that. So nothing close to this uh, uh, this this hatred uh, that they yeah. that they wanted to uh, impart from uh, from Colbert and a Link onto onto Avery. None of that happened. They got along. Just fine with the Avery family. They had used the Avery salvage yard to buy parts in in the past. Uh, they had used their wrecking service. You know, they had worked with the Averys. They knew them uh, uh, very well, and it wasn't something that they uh, at all were trying to uh, to set up one of those family members. There was no reason uh, to do that. In fact, their first opinion was that Stephen Avery's not involved in this crime. Andy Colburn told that to other investigators that they believed that when they were looking at Stephen Avery and maybe involved in this crime, that Stephen uh, in his opinion was not involved, that they should be looking at some other people uh, for the commission of this crime. That tells you all you need to know about the real attitude of, of Andy Colburn and that he did not set out uh, to do anything even close to trying to set this guy up for murder.
3: Right.
0: And I think it's also important to point out neither Mr. Colburn or Mr. Lank were even employed in Manitowoc County in 1985. Right. They weren't involved. Uh Mr. Colburn was in the Air Force and Mr. Lank was was in Detroit
2: in a police officer in Detroit. They weren't even uh uh yeah, they weren't even even involved much less um you know that they wanted to to try to shore up that uh that that investigation. You Link and Colburn were asked to perform evidence tech responsibilities because that's why why those two were needed uh, on the scene, at the scene. In fact, there
3: was a Mm -hmm. third
2: officer that that helped them. But the reason Colburn and Link were picked is because they had no connection to Stephen Avery and no connection to his previous case. So that's why they were chosen, ironically, uh, to have been evidence techs in the case because they had – no animus, or they had no potential connection to Stephen Avery at all, uh, and so it's kind of interesting that the defense attorneys back in the original case and then the post conviction attorneys and the filmmakers would have chosen those two as the guys to uh, to blame as having you know created all of this to uh, to set up this guy for murder uh, it uh, can't be further uh, from the truth they picked the two nicest uh, and most uh, law-abiding, most honest cops uh, that they could have uh, chosen to uh, uh, to be their villains in the case, and I guess that's uh, uh, you know that's that's the whole idea of looking at these people's character beforehand. You know, Colburn or Link both had uh, impeccable records; they were never involved in any kind of misconduct, uh, nor was anybody else in, involved in the case. Uh, yet you would have thought that uh, this was. You know, at the at the worst, uh, a bunch of Keystone cops, and uh, and and maybe even that they all conspired to uh, to it, set up this uh, it, this innocent man. That's just furthest for this thing from the truth that you can find.
0: It it's like it's like Manitowoc County is chaos from Get Smart.
3: Yeah,
2: well,
0: it, that's that's good. kind of the impression that I got. And you made a very interesting point in your book, uh, which is excellent. Uh, no matter what side of the fence you may be on, please read Mr. Kratz's books, Avery, uh, this is a long title, The Case Against Stephen Avery and What Making a Murderer Gets Wrong. I love that you organized it into pieces of evidence, and then you mm-hmm. discussed information about each piece of evidence. That was, it was, I've never seen a true crime book arranged in that way, mm-hmm. and it made it, Easier to uh, get the whole picture about one piece of the puzzle. Well, I read than it to now. go through the entire book. But it's almost like a, a brief. no uh, I'm, I'm sorry, you
2: arranged it. It's it's brilliant. I arranged it so that, and in fact, I, I I mentioned in the in the first chapter, I believe that you don't have to believe anything I say. In fact, I don't want people to believe me. This isn't something where where it's Ken Kratz telling you uh, all these things. I back everything up in that book with either uh, police reports or evidence that was presented at trial, uh, uncontested facts most of the time, or at least those that could be proved uh, in a court of law. And so uh, when I presented or lay it all out by pieces of evidence and, and what you're talking about is I, I discuss the key, and then I discuss the bones, and then I discuss uh, the blood and, and and other things that uh, that were found. It's an easy way, I think, to uh, to catalog the evidence and to present it. You know, I couldn't present a jury trial that way because uh, you know things come in in bits and pieces, and it's more of a mosaic uh, that you paint. Uh, you paint for a jury, but but in in, in writing this book, it was a a difficult task to think about how to tell this story because, uh, you know, it's such a, a complex story in, uh, in, in, in one matter. And then you throw in all these conspiracy theories. So it's difficult to, to kind of, you know, bite off that whole big chunk. And so what I do is I broke it down into the pieces of evidence and, and thank you very much for your kind words about, uh, about the book. I, I took a long time to, uh, to, to, kind of lay out the evidence as clearly uh as uh, as it can. It's a fast read. Uh it's something that you can get through in, in just uh in just a couple of hours and and uh and, and I hope that it'll be looked at uh as history kind of moves forward as a kind of the definitive explanation of what really happened to Teresa Hoba.
3: Yes.
0: And uh, like I said I do appreciate it. I'm reading it for the second time. <laughs> So, um, what we're going to do? We usually take a, a little break in the after the first hour. Uh, play a little music, stretch our legs, yeah, and then we'll be we'll be back.
2: Oh yes? I was going to say your bumper music. You know, Doctor John, the right place in the wrong time. This is this is back in my era. So I like uh, I like your first song I, that you brought in here. So it was good. I am from New Orleans. Yeah.
0: and so of course it has to be Doctor John. But Michael and I thought a lot of the people we talk about.
2: Yeah. This is
0: their story. I was in the wrong place. Yeah. Must have been in the wrong place. It wasn't it was me. Long
2: time. Yeah. yeah. great
0: uh, Great. Great. So we're gonna just take Hi. a quick. Thank you. Thank you. I pick a different song for the break. And I I tried to find. I looked online and found. A song that a couple of articles said Teresa
2: loved. Well talking about uh talking about Zellner and the filmmakers, you know, Annie Lennox, would I lie to you is something that you probably should have should have put on there. But we'll uh <laughs> we'll hear whatever you got here, all right? All right. We'll be back in
0: a, in a in a few more just gonna take a little break.
3: My life in a slow hell Different girl every night At the hotel I ain't seen the sun in Three damn days Been fueling up on cocaine and whiskey Wish I had a good girl to miss me Lord, I wonder if I'll ever change my way I put your picture away Sat down and cried today I can't look at you while I'm lying next to her I put
2: And we're back. I think the last time Lisa, I heard that song, I was probably wearing uh, roller skates with a disco ball going around. <laughs> so it was uh, back in the mid '70s. It's interesting. Okay, sorry. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm.
0: I'm the same. We're we're of an age, yes. Uh, <laughs> um, one of these days, I might switch to the Meters or one of the other local, like the Neville Brothers yeah. or something uh Ico Ico
2: is a good one well I was you know I don't mean to I don't mean to digress here, but you've got you've got uh, Kid Rock talking about whiskey and cocaine and you got vaping accessories as your uh as your as well, your, your, your I, commercial here. this is quite the place to come I guess is a, is a fun, I may have been uh, wrong
0: <laughs> I may have been wrong to pick that song um I read a bunch of articles that said that was the song she liked to sing at karaoke, and Cheryl oh. Crow, it's a duet between Kid Rock and Sheryl Crow. Right, right, right,
3: right, right.
0: And I didn't think about how we don't play the whole song. I should have done <laughs> Unwritten by not Natasha Bedingfield, because I heard that the other day, and it made me think of her. But, oh well. <laughs> That's what I get for doing it the morning of the show. <laughs> it's all good music. It's all good. Yeah. So... So I guess we're at October 31st, 2005, and what happened with Teresa likely started probably her first visit to Avery Salvage Yard in June. But there was an incident on October 10th between with Teresa that left her a little unsettled. Right. And you were able to develop a lot of information about that and testimony from her coworkers. But, well, I thought we- uh, Painted a good picture of that.
2: October 10th, which was also a Monday. I think uh, your listeners need to know that October 31st is a Monday. October 10th is a Monday. The reason is because uh, those were the days, those Mondays, were the days that Teresa did her little side job. You know, she was a photographer, she would mostly do portraits and, and uh, you know, and, and things that photographers do. But she also took pictures for this auto Trader magazine, just as kind of side money uh, that she would, uh, she would do, and she would do those shoots on Mondays. Well, Avery knew that, and Avery, on uh, one of the Mondays uh, earlier in the year, had gotten Teresa's direct phone number. And Teresa had told him that he could call her directly. he wouldn't have to call Auto Trader magazine to come out and do a photo shoot. So on the 10th of October, for the first time, Stephen Avery called Teresa directly to come out and do a photo shoot. So she agreed to do that. She went out to the Avery uh, uh, Salvage property and met with Stephen Avery in his trailer. That's where Stephen invited her to come into the trailer. Well, he was only wearing a white towel at the time, and uh, Teresa, as we now know, had complained uh, to friends and to a coworker that it creeped her out that this guy had uh, invited her in. You know, and what's special about uh, October 10th? Well, what we developed and what we learned is that the day before, on October 9th, Stephen Avery, together with his sister Barb, uh, went to a a, a, a retail establishment. And Stephen bought new handcuffs and new leg irons on the 9th of October. It's interesting to note, I think, that uh, Stephen's girlfriend at the time, Jody Stakowski, was in jail uh, for her uh, uh, fourth offense drunk driving. She was going to be in jail until March. And so why he's buying leg irons and handcuffs on October 9th is up for speculation. But what we do know is the very next day, he calls Teresa and invites her out where he's found just wearing a white towel. He also tells Teresa when she asks about some women whose photographs are on the wall, Stephen Avery says, um, you know, you're going to be on that wall someday. And when you think back to that, uh, you know, Lisa, that's chilling, that's chilling kinds of, uh, of statements. By the way, what happened on October 10th um, Judge Willis did not allow the state to present, so this evidence was not allowed uh, at the time of of the trial, although I believe it to be to be very very relevant you know on the same date October tenth Stephen Avery took a uh, a photograph of himself um, that he was uh, laying on his bed when um, when he was unclothed and when he was in a state of uh, sexual arousal he took a photo of himself now was that before Teresa got there on the 10th or was it after she got there uh, we don't really know but we know it's the same day because there's a time stamp on the photograph uh, itself and so obviously uh, whatever was going on with Teresa um, uh, at least uh, coincided in time with when Avery was taking a picture of uh, himself mm-hmm. being being sexually aroused, and so the 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 import of this, uh, of uh, October 10th, uh, was, and what the defense said, was because Stephen knew how to call her directly, knew how to get her there without going through AutoTrader, why didn't he just do that three weeks later on the 31st when he called AutoTrader and he asked them, uh, this is his quote, to send out the same photographer who's been here before and so mm-hmm. that of course is is Teresa he wanted her to be sent out there but the reason of course that he didn't call her directly and get her out there is because he didn't want Teresa to know that it was him that was calling there were several other people from the Avery uh, Salvage property the other brothers and and Barb Yanda's uh, ex-husband who had used Autotrader to take other photos. And so when he called and he gave them the name B. Yanda, uh, that's his sister, Barb mm-hmm. Yanda, when he gave the phone number for Barb Yanda's home, not for his own home, um, it was uh, my uh, opinion and it was my theory that I had told the uh, the jury uh, that he's luring uh, Teresa out to the salvage yard. He doesn't want her to know that it's him uh, that she's going to meet with. In fact, uh, Teresa didn't know the address when he first called. We know that because a a voicemail left by Teresa, which was played, by the way, at the beginning of of episode two of the first season of Making a Murderer. They played Mm -hmm. Teresa's call to Stephen, and and she says, um, you know, I could be there uh, sometime after 2 o'clock, but what uh, she also says that the filmmakers cut out of that call. There's about five seconds cut out of the middle of the call. And, and you might want to wonder, why would they cut out just five seconds of that phone call? Well, it's where Teresa says to Stephen, I don't know the address. So you have to call me back because I don't know the address that I'm coming to. Well, mm-hmm. the defense theory was that she knew exactly where she was going that she wasn't lured at all, that she, she knew it was the Avery uh, salvage property. But in her own words, she said, I don't have the address. I don't know where it is that I'm going. Well, mm-hmm. you can see why the filmmakers don't want the audience to know that. They want the audience to believe that Teresa knew exactly where she was going and who she was meeting with. Uh, but her voicemail proves just the opposite. It proves when she says, I don't have the address. And so why would the filmmakers cut that out? Why don't they want the audience to hear her saying, I don't know where I'm going. You have to call me back and give me the address. Once again, it doesn't fit their narrative. Their narrative was that she wasn't um, sketchy about this at all. She didn't feel at all uh, apprehensive about going out there. Uh, when we know she was, when we know she used the terms uh, creepy, when she know that she complained about uh, this guy. uh, And it is uh, my belief, of course, that if Stephen would have called her directly, like he did on the 10th, because of what happened on the 10th, Teresa was never going back there. She certainly was never going into uh, his trailer ever again uh, because of, of, of what had happened. You know, we also found a note, that had Teresa's phone number written on the top of the note, and then underneath that were the words that said, Back to Patio Door. All right? So it's the kind of note that would be left on his screen door of his trailer, uh, and my theory, of course, was to lure her to back behind the trailer where other witnesses couldn't see uh, what he had planned to do with the abduction and whatever else. Uh, that there was this note we found that said back uh, to the patio door, and so all of these little nuggets of, of evidence of information uh, don't become relevant, uh, or don't you don't really know the relevance of them until all of the picture kind of uh, kind of comes together, and then it's pretty clear to see uh, that Stephen did in fact lure this young woman out to the salvage yard, did have every intent to do exactly what he did, prepared for. Uh, her visit that day uh, and then uh, abducted um, likely raped and certainly uh, killed her before she ever left um, uh, that salvage property and so this wasn't the spur of the moment thing for Stephen Avery it wasn't just uh, something that he thought up uh, on the the fly it was something that had to be planned out detailed Uh, and so uh, Avery uh, premeditated uh, certainly knew he was going to uh, was going to abduct and, and kill this woman and, like I said, uh, likely raped her um, as well. And those, of course, are, uh, are statements that uh, Brendan Dassey had given uh, to investigators that both he and, uh, and his uncle Stephen Avery uh, raped Teresa before she was killed that day. So the sad details uh, that were given by, uh, by Brendan Dassey um, you know, are kind of played out uh, once you realize what it is that Stephen had planned, and what it is that he was mm-hmm. able to uh, to execute his plan, and so it's a troubling scenario. It's something nobody really wants to think about uh, of, of what what were the last three or four hours of this woman's life like, uh, you know, before yeah. she's killed, and and it's the kind of thing that that I don't like to think about uh, as a prosecutor, but I'm sure that uh, sitting through the evidence. Sitting through all of these uh, nuggets that are are brought, uh, it's very clear what his intent was, and it must have been uh, just incredibly difficult for family and friends to have to sit and listen to uh, to all that uh, that testimony um, and uh, and think about what it was that uh, that happened to this uh, this poor young woman. So um, once the jury uh, heard about luring him out there, they didn't have any 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 problem coming to the conclusion um that this wasn't something that was uh, just a spur of the moment uh uh that it it was in fact planned out and and stephen avery uh as he was uh, found guilty uh did plan the mm-hmm. uh, the the intentional homicide of the gentleman
0: and you know that also brings up an interesting point uh Bobby Duffy's statement. First of all, Naked A Murderer and Kathleen Zellner rely almost exclusively on Avery's self serving statements. Of course we also know he gave inconsistent statements because he told was it Earl and Fabian that she never showed up. And he called yeah, auto trader and said she never showed up.
2: Yeah. And so this is this how do you how do you explain that? If you're an innocent mm-hmm. if you're an innocent Stephen Avery How is it that you told at least three people that this woman never showed up that day? Well, that was his first defense. He was going to claim that Teresa never showed up. In fact, he made a call to Teresa at about 4.35 p.m. to her cell phone. He knew she'd never answer the cell phone because he was looking at it. He was looking down on her cell phone burning in the burn Mm -hmm. barrel, and he made that call uh, and and calls the phone. uh, And later he claims that he called her to say, uh, you know, where were you? Why didn't you why didn't you show up? And so his defense, which originally was going to be she never showed up, changes sometime later in the day on the third of November, when he learns for the first time that Bobby Dassey saw her. That Bobby saw mm-hmm. her there. That for the first time he knows that there's a witness that saw her show up, that saw her take the photographs, and that was last seen walking towards Steven's trailer uh, before uh, Bobby jumped in the shower and then later went hunting. You know, when Bobby left and went hunting that day, her car was still there, uh, but she was nowhere to be found. And I think, uh, uh, you know, the, the 15 or so minutes that it took uh, between uh, the time that uh, that she took the pictures and walked towards the trailer and when Bobby later comes out and sees her car still there but doesn't see her anywhere. Uh, it doesn't take uh, you know very much um, um, uh, detective work to know what was happening to her time, and it's it's again it's a it's, it's a really sad reminder of the things that were going on. And rather than uh, admit that, well, I guess I guess you know a witness saw me. I guess I'm uh, I'm going to have to plead guilty or something to this. Uh, mm-hmm. and instead, he turns it on Bobby, on his own nephew and says, well, it must have been Bobby then that, um, that had killed her. You know How despicable for Stephen Avery uh, not only to have um, encouraged or cajoled Brendan Dassey into raping and participating in killing and mutilating this young woman, uh, but he later then blames his other nephew, Bobby Dassey, mm-hmm. as uh, having uh, committed the murder. You know, Stephen Avery is, is, is the kind of unrepentant, a murderer, and and kind of personality that he would have, in my opinion, kept killing uh, before uh, he was caught, and and I think uh, all of us have to be uh, very very glad that on uh, what we know to be his first murder, or what uh, I believe anyway, was uh, his first murder, uh, that uh, he was caught so that he couldn't commit uh, any other uh, any other violence against women, and so um you know i i i always hope and i always look for a silver lining uh in uh in some of these cases and as uh as wonderful as uh as 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 teresa was and and uh and as senseless as this murder uh may have uh may have appeared uh in the long run uh she left evidence she left evidence mm-hmm. for the cops and for the jury uh to to understand you know she told the jury I was here she told the jury this is what happened to me this is how I was killed this is who killed me and so right. she did her very best even even, um, uh, you know, even because of her murder she did the very best that she could to leave clues for the jury and the juries used those clues and, and, and determined you know, how sh- she was killed who killed her and then uh, held responsible those uh, two individuals um, that participated. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think those things aren't by accident. I think uh, everything happens for a reason. uh, And I think uh, very much those clues were left uh, so that Mm -hmm. uh, Stephen Avery could be held uh, accountable for these crimes that he committed.
0: Now we know though, unfortunately, that there weren't, there wasn't any evidence found. I don't think that necessarily means there wasn't any evidence there. It just may have been, you know, you couldn't see a blood drop that's so small, so you know, minuscule that it didn't show up with alternative light, or you know, the, yeah. the room wasn't conducive to a ter- alternative light. But Where there wasn't any the- evidence in the trailer.
2: Oh, in the trailer, yeah, inside. Well, the- and according to Brendan... There's and there's a lot of reasons for that, yeah. Well, well Lisa, Brendan Dancy said that after she was raped uh, and held in his bedroom that they had taken all of the bedding, all of it, that was on the bed, they wrapped it all up, and that, together with her clothes, were burned in the burn pit area. We know that her clothes were burned because we later mm-hmm. found rivets for her Daisy Fuentes' genes that were located in the same burn pit that her bones were found. You know, when you look at um, her, her teeth being found in there and her genes being found in there, uh, for uh, Zellner or any other hack to suggest that that wasn't the primary burn location, well, how the hell do you get? her Daisy Fuentes jean rivets there if that's not where she was burned. How do you find her teeth there if that wasn't where she was burned? Are you saying that somebody burned her in some remote location and then uh, brought her uh, back to uh, his property and scattered the bones with uh, nobody, in fact, not even Avery's own attack dog, uh, his uh, his um, a German Shepherd Bear. that was located Correct. just a couple of feet from there, that that dog wouldn't have gone crazy if some stranger or somebody else would have come on that uh, property to try to scatter bones and things. You never would have gotten away with that. And you still have no explanation for the burned electronics that are in uh, in his, his in the burn barrel. barrel. I keep, Correct. keep going back to all this evidence that they have no explanation for. Well, what about the, the rivets that were found? Where did those come from, Attorney Zellner? What about her tooth that was found in in that burn pit? If her tooth and her clothes are found in that burn pit, don't you think that's where she was burned? That kind of makes sense uh, and and, uh, isn't something that uh, really takes uh, much other than hiding it from the audience. And, of course, I'm guessing Mm -hmm. none of the audience was told that her rivets from her jeans were found there. They're not told that her teeth uh, uh, you know, were uh, were found there, and so um, there's there's a lot of other evidence that that the general public doesn't know about Correct. that proves unmistakably where the primary burn location was, and it was 20 feet from Avery's own back door in his burn pit area. Right,
0: and I think too, it's it's important to note that. Uh, One of the criticisms that uh, one of Zellner's experts had on camera, although I don't know if his affidavit is equally critical, uh, that was filed with the court, which is troubling to me, is that um, he claimed that two tires would not have been enough to burn, to produce enough heat to burn Teresa's body. Well, we know they threw on wood, they threw on furniture, they threw on a car seat. They had multiple tires.
2: Yeah, let me, let me I was reading here, your sorry. closing
0: argument, and, and I mean, there's a list of highly flammable materials that were piled onto that burn pit. Right. What the
2: arson investigators told me was the single biggest, or at least what they believed was the biggest, source of, of, of producing incredible heat was this van seat. And mm-hmm. and it's got this this poly foam stuff I guess that it's made out of, but what they called solid gasoline, and that's when they burn those kinds of materials, it creates you know such such a, 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 a such a heat source um, that right. uh, that that you have to understand that and there weren't just two tires, mm-hmm. um, there were there were the um, Steel belts, the remnants of the the tires that were burned in that in that burn pit. Let me tell you one other thing, Lisa. I don't want to lose this this point, and that is that uh, uh, that some of the bones that were recovered were intertwined with the seal belts that were found in the burn pit. What that means is that these little pieces of bone that were so brittle that would have Disintegrated if you were touched it, if you were grabbed it, were found intertwined in these steel belts, proving that the bones and the steel belt, the radial tires, all burned at the same time. That's the only way that you could get those bones intertwined into the uh, into the um, uh, the condition that they were found in uh, in those in those steel belts. Just another. Fact, another undisputed mm-hmm. fact that shows that this was the primary burn location, that the bones were intertwined in the steel belts that were found there. You can't do that, burning it in some remote location and then transporting those things. What and then do, transporting t- it, t- t- take a little piece of bone and try to and try to intertwine it into the into the steel belts. Well, who would do that? Uh, just think about uh, if you were to plant evidence, which which I'm hoping you wouldn't, but if you would. Um, you wouldn't do it like that. In fact, you wouldn't burn her at all. You would probably deposit Teresa's body unburned. Because she's gotta be in the followed. trailer. In well, his bed, gonna, in the trailer. Handcuffed. <laughs> <if laughs> <you're laughs> well, put her on the put her on the on the, the doorstep. Uh, you know, and, and don't hide her car. You know, you've got to have right. her car found if you're gonna plant the evidence. You don't wanna you don't wanna conceal it or or um or camouflage it. That's somebody that doesn't mm-hmm. want the vehicle found. Well, if you're planting evidence, you need that evidence found. You need it to be found as Teresa Halbach. You don't. You know, we had a, a forensic anthropologist, one of the best in the in the world, who took a very long time to identify these remains as being that of Teresa Halbach. Well, how do you expect some layperson who's planting the bones then? Uh, to have known that this was Teresa Hoback, you couldn't have known that uh, unless uh, mm-hmm. unless she was burned right there at that location. And so that's that's clearly what happened. It's all of these things that are contrary to what uh, you would have expected if somebody was really trying to uh, to plant evidence. They would have planted much more identifiable, much more obvious evidence to um, uh, to convict this guy of uh, of murder. Uh, rather than trying to hide all of this evidence, which is, which is how it was that, uh, that we all found it to be. So right. it's not consistent at all with planting. It's very consistent with a murderer who's trying to hide evidence from the police. Correct, because consciousness of guilt.
0: And these are all actions that go toward consciousness of guilt. Hiding the vehicle, camouflaging it so that it's not seen from the air, so that it's probably going to be hard to pick out. From somebody just cursory giving a cursory look toward that area. Right. Well, let me tell you um, this,
2: Lisa. The only reason you burn a body is to, it's to try to hide it. who it is. Is you're trying to hide the identity of the person that you burned. That's why you right. burn them. And so uh <laughs> and so the only right. person that wants to and hide the identity is the killer. It's not uh
0: you know it's not, you know. Go ahead. And that's also that's also destroying any evidence that would have corroborated rape, would have told you how she was murdered, when she was murdered, because there's nothing left to, uh, you know, you have those beveled edges on the two bone fragments that say, okay, well, we know she was shot in the head, but she may have been shot in other parts of her body that there was no there was no bone, and right she was there was
2: no bone to tell you that the, there was a no. gunshot in the ribs, or no the bullet um, that was right the bullet that was found item f l uh, was a a shot that went through Teresa's body, but not through two layers of skull it wouldn't have been found in any pristine condition like it was, so attorney Zellner trying to convince. Uh, you know her audience in making a murderer too mm-hmm. that it was the state's theory that the bone that was recovered had gone through teresa 's skull is a bunch of nonsense. We felt just the opposite that was that was evidence that was a bullet that had gone through soft tissue that was recovered in almost a pristine uh, 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 way behind a compressor in uh in the garage. It was not now- never argued to be never. Never told the jury, or even hinted to the jury, that that was uh, 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 evidence of, of of the gunshots to the head. Uh, there and were no exit wounds that were ever found, and so those bullets likely remained in the skull and likely were uh, disintegrated in the uh, in the fire with the rest of the with the rest of the uh, the burned uh, material that was there. And so, for attorney Zellner to try to fool the audience. That this was the state's theory uh, is really despicable. It's a it's an argument um, that uh, that oftentimes you would see in high school in a in a debate team or something. It's called a <laughs> straw man argument, where you first mi- misrepresent what the other person's saying, and then you you dispel it. You set up the straw man to to knock it down. Well, well, uh, her straw man is that the that this bullet must have gone through skull. And then she, she of course, uh, puts in her quote-unquote experts to say, well, there isn't any bone found on it, so mm-hmm. it couldn't have gone through the skull. Well, duh, it didn't go through the skull with any We never claimed what? that it did. In fact, it likely was not uh, a bullet that had gone through the skull at all because of the condition that the bullet was found in. So why you would represent that as having been our theory uh, is something that I have no idea why she chose that to. Have.
0: I I I suspect, based on what you're saying, I suspect that they actually did a bait and switch because what they were examining was not a pristine bullet; it was a
2: deformed fragment. Yeah. Well, there were two. What you got to know, uh, uh, Lisa, is that there's two different fragments that were. That were found. One is mm-hmm. is uh, it kind of looked like a roofing nail. It was so deformed um, and was found, and they couldn't do any ballistic testing on it at all. They couldn't tell right. uh, even what caliber it was or what gun it was. It was shot from, but the item FL, the the item, the bullet that had Teresa's DNA on it, was ballistically tested and did uh, provide uh, the ballistic match as having come from the gun hanging over. Stephen Avery's bed, the same gun, by the way, that Dassey identified. The same gun that Dassey identified was the gun that was used to kill Teresa. Well, there's maybe 20 different firearms on the uh, the salvage yard. How come when people are talking about corroborating evidence that Brendan came up with, how come the identification as the murder weapon wasn't one of those things that they – that they admit. Well, Brendan was the one who talked about uh, it was this gun hanging over his bed that was used to kill Mm -hmm. her, the same gun that was ballistically matched as having fired that bullet. Well, Brendan didn't know that at the time, and was he just lucky that he picked the right gun out of maybe 20 other guns that were on that Mm location? Of course not. It's corroborative physical evidence corroborating Brendan Dassey's confession and everybody forgets that. Nobody wants to point to all of those physical pieces that were later found to have corroborated his version of what happened.
0: And it's also important to note that that gun was seized in November. That bullet was not located until after Dassey's confession. Right March.: and So there's no way that that bullet could have been planted.
2: Well, here's what five funny. months later. Here's what's so funny. That doesn't stop the defense from saying it was planted. No. And They still, <laughs> they 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 still bring that up. Well, what happened? Did somebody take the firearm out of the <clears throat> evidence in Madison, and did they test fire a bullet and then use that to plant it uh, with the DNA that you know we don't even have <laughs> Teresa's DNA? Mm-hmm. So where we where did we get her DNA? to put all over that particular uh, piece of evidence, where would that come from? And so to have her DNA on a bullet that's found in March that was shot from a gun that's been in evidence since November, there is no way that you can plant or, or create that evidence. But also, uh, let, me just, let me put one thing for those of your listeners who know the facts really well. I want to tell them to look at the photos of the garage, Stephen Avery's garage on March 1st, before the officers went in to search it. There's snow, which is all around the garage, and there are, are, are um, snow drifts that were covering both of the entrance doors to the garage. There were no footprints. There was nobody that entered that garage. And so if you're suggesting that the officers planted that bullet, what did they do? Fly over the snow uh, in, in order to give it, get it into the garage? There aren't any footprints. Mm-hmm. There aren't any evidence of anybody having been in that garage. And so if you're going to say they planted it, you also have to say when did they plant it. Apparently they didn't know that they – were needing a bullet in there until after Brendan said that's where the homicide occurred was in the garage. That's when they went back and searched (coughs) the garage and they found these, uh, these bullet fragments. And so um, if, uh, if your um, audience or your audience members wants to look at all of the photographs of the garage and the exterior of the garage before they searched it, they will find there were no footprints. There was no ability to, uh, even if they wanted to plant that evidence, to hide the fact that, that they would have entered the garage. And so uh, none of this makes sense once you ask just a couple of questions. Uh, all these theories by attorney Zellner uh, collapse under their own weight. They just don't hold up under any kind of scrutiny, even the most modest of scrutiny. And so, um, you know, I said it was it was laughable if it wouldn't have been uh, this series of allegations, especially that Attorney Zellner is bringing up, that is accusing people of planting evidence, accusing people of having committed this homicide other than her client.
0: Correct. And so let's move on to November 3rd, Teresa's reporting missing by, missing by her mother. Now, there's a there's a statement in your book, and frankly, I think you're paraphrasing to a degree but uh, Kathleen Zellner has taken um, a great offense at it. Uh, have you seen her 17 refu- refutations of your statements in your book? No, I don't know. Okay. I haven't. <laughs> so, what is what, Well, what you said you something that? about Mark Weger knocking on your door in the morning and telling you about Teresa being reported missing. Uh, but I think you're the, more or less paraphrasing, not saying yeah, it happened it, in the morning. You know.
2: No, 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 no. It was the afternoon. Or we that had, morning. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. It was it was the description of when Uyghur told me uh, that this had happened, and it it had occurred in the afternoon. I do think my book said that he had told me about it uh, uh, in the morning, but I didn't learn uh, that uh, she was at Avery Salvage. Yard as the last location until sometime in the afternoon of the third, and so if that's mm-hmm. if, if if that's what uh, Attorney Zellner and others are claiming is uh, is incorrect, well, I guess I can I can uh, I can live with that. That's uh,
0: yeah, I, uh, but I it looks more to me like he told you she'd been reported missing that morning because her boss or the no 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 no, no I don't photographer do she chair, shared a space with. Contacted Lisa, her mom say, in the morning. I, no, no, no. I, and yeah. then her mom reported. Right. I think Zoner is getting into semantics about when the report was made.
2: I'm telling you, Lisa. And I don't that, think
0: your statement's even
3: incorrect.
2: Well, what I'm telling you is, I think it's incorrect. I'm telling okay. you that I think I think he didn't say anything to me till that afternoon. Okay, so yeah. if that clears up anything for anybody, I I I, I hope they'll be able to sleep now that uh, that that they know that Uyghur came uh you know a few hours later than 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 the morning so in the morning uh, i'm glad i'm glad that that's all been cleared up now and and, <laughs> and people now can can move on with uh, uh with more important matters so um i i appreciate when um when i'm told of uh of uh, uh, errors or or things that uh that may have been uh, mistakenly uh, put into the book, you know, the, uh, my book is coming out in paperback uh, later this year. Uh, There is that error and a couple of, uh, of other, uh, uh, you know, typos or, or small errors that were made uh, that will be cleaned up in the, um, uh, in the paperback version, as well as adding a couple of new chapters that uh, Uh I intend uh, to add to my book. And then, uh, later on in uh, uh, this coming year in 2019, um, Avery, the uh, uh, the book that I wrote uh, about this case will be released in a paperback version with new chapters um, and with uh, some of those corrections having been made. So, uh, hopefully that will um, that will clear up any uh, any problems that anybody might uh, might have found with uh, with the book. Otherwise, uh, the book is is very well fact-checked. Very well researched, and I'm I'm very proud of uh, of the finished product. What it is that uh, that was put together and explained how I prosecuted this case. Okay, okay great.
0: I'm looking forward to that too, because I, I I would love to read the new chapters. Um, and then on November 3rd, they did do interviews at Avery Salvage because at some point it was developed that she'd been in Manitowoc, and she'd been to Zipperer and Schmidt and
2: Avery right well they went, uh, they, went was... to, they went to all three of those places on mm-hmm. the third um, the last three places that she had been and they had determined um, based on going through her um, her calendar as well as um, whose house did she go to first and then who's next that Stephen Avery was her last stop that day they found that on the third of uh of november uh that uh avery was the last location that she had been seen alive and so it shouldn't be too difficult uh, to figure out why was it then that uh, the investigation focused on steven it's because you focus on where was the last person this uh or where was the last place this person was seen alive uh it didn't uh you don't have to be nancy drew i guess uh, to realize that you start where where, uh, where she was seen right. last, and, and that's where all the other evidence then was found. So, um, you know, there isn't anything special. You know, I, I keep hearing things like, well, why wasn't uh, Ryan Hilgis interviewed? Well, an ex-boyfriend who lives in Milwaukee, who on the 31st of, um, of October was nowhere around Manitowoc, uh, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. uh, questioning him, Uh, about the case was not a priority at that time when all of the evidence was pointing to Stephen Avery, not only the physical evidence, but also circumstantially that was the last place that she was seen alive. That's where Mm -hmm. the cops should have started their investigation. You're not taking limited resources and going off and and talking to ex-boyfriends at at the time. Uh, They did their due diligence and they they cleared uh, many other suspects, uh, in the case, uh, but uh, Stephen Avery was uh, the one person, was the last person to have seen her. And that's where the investigation, I think, rightfully uh, began to uh, to heat up uh, was what he might have known uh, about Teresa's disappearance.
3: Correct.
0: And this was a multi-jurisdictional case because Teresa was a Calumet resident, Calumet County. Right. So that was where
2: she was reported missing. Well, that's how I got involved in the case. And in, in the first case was a missing persons uh, case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Officer Wiegert uh, and, and I and some other uh, cops from uh, Calumet were uh, doing some, um, uh, some cell tracking. We were looking at some financial records. We were trying to see um, if we could uh, find out where she had gone. Uh, we are trying to do a missing persons case. And then on Saturday, a couple of days later, when her vehicle was found and it, it turns out that uh, Manigawa County couldn't handle the investigation or the prosecution, that they needed to appoint another uh, agency to be the lead investigative agency. And that's when Calumet uh, agreed to be the lead investigative agency. And that's when the DA asked me if I would agree to be the special prosecutor uh, on, uh, mm-hmm. on the case to handle the investigation to handle the subsequent prosecution and i agreed to do that on saturday the uh, uh the 5th of uh of november and that's when i went to every salvage yard uh and was there at about uh maybe one thirty in the afternoon just about uh, two or three hours after teresa's vehicle was there and then i worked with my staff to get all the search warrants uh, prepared and we worked uh, the rest of that day then on uh on the search warrants until we could uh, search the uh, residences and the uh, and the junk cars and the rest of the, the Avery salvage yard. But that's uh, that's the genesis of how I got involved in the case. Okay,
0: and I think you made a, a an excellent point in your book about the fact that while there were there was a conflict for the Manitowoc DA and there was a conflict for the Manitowoc sheriff that did not mean that all Manitowoc personnel had to be uh, taken off the investigation. And that's really not feasible. Calumet County is not big enough to handle an investigation in Manitowoc County of this scope. You did have DOJ with uh, uh department of criminal investigation with DOJ through Mr. Fassbender and several other people uh, who came in to also, kind of uh, helm the investigation. But you mm-hmm. make an excellent point that the Manitowoc officers for searching a 40-acre salvage yard, searching the multiple buildings on the property, multiple garages, multiple trailers, multiple homes, uh, that was necessary because you needed all hands on
2: deck, more or less. Well, there were four residences to be searched. There were probably 10 uh, 10- different outbuildings that had to be searched, 3,800 junked vehicles. Each one of them had to be searched to see if there was any evidence in it. In fact, the first time um, uh, uh, our uh, investigative teams went through all 3,800 cars, uh, they found a a license plate uh, crumpled up and in the back of a, a vehicle and they were found to be a Teresa Halbach's license plates. And so it was important to search every vehicle. You know, there's blood in a lot of those vehicles. We didn't know who it belonged to uh, in a very real sense. Uh, we were searching for things that uh, we didn't even know if they were relevant or not. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean they didn't all have to be searched, and they were. So when you look at the the size of this crime scene, it's a 40-acre crime scene with thirty eight hundred cars and four residences and ten buildings and and uh, and it's a lot of work a lot to be searched and what we didn't have a lot of at the time were evidence techs. that is uh, uh, those police officers that were specialized that received specialized training in how to collect um, you know how to gather evidence and, and, and package it and collect it for uh, to be to be transported to To the crime lab, officers Link and Colburn were the two officers from Manitowoc who had the evidence tech training. And because Mm -hmm. they were trained evidence techs and because they were known to have no connection to the Stephen Avery case or or anything about him, they were the two that were allowed to serve as evidence techs to always go with a Calumet officer or a a state uh, homicide investigator And that's when they went out. And when evidence was gathered by either Link or Colburn, there was always another Calumet cop with them, whether it was uh, uh, Deputy uh, Bill Tyson or whether it was uh, Deputy uh, uh, Kaharski. uh, There was always somebody else that was with them. They weren't allowed to kind of go off their own and and search. They were searching in teams, and the team always – consisted of either a state um, homicide investigator or a Calumet uh, officer as the lead uh, investigator, and then they were assisted with the collection by, uh, by Lincoln Colburn. You know, that's how the key uh, was found, when the three officers were searching for the first time, searching the furniture in Stephen Avery's bedroom, and the key uh, falls out the back of this bookcase and down onto the, onto the floor, and the officers, for the first time, Find the key um, uh, on the bedroom floor. It was officers mm-hmm. Kharzky, was Kaharski, uh and Link and Colburn that all three were there when uh, when the key was found. Uh, but it was found exactly when it should have been found. We hear a lot about it not being found to the sixty seventh search. That's nonsense. It was found on the first thorough, thorough search, search of any of the uh, of any of the uh, furniture uh in uh and in it, the bedroom and we know it to have been secured or or secreted behind uh, uh in the back of a, a of a cabinet which has okay. about a half inch gap uh the back panel of uh of this uh bookcase uh, was pulled back or pulled away uh from the uh the bookcase itself and so the jury got to see that they got to see the mm-hmm. the gap although i don't think the uh, the, the those that watched Making a Murderer got to see it, but the jurors got to see no. the actual cabinet, and they could see how the key was uh, was uh, easily found to have fallen behind this cabinet and down under the floor. It wasn't magic at all that uh, that uh, that found or that allowed this key to be found. It was gravity. It was gravity mm-hmm. that uh, that uh, that made this key fall down the, the back and. Uh, and, and was found at the time. So once uh, once your audience, I think, and once the jury certainly heard all of the evidence, it all fit together very nicely uh, as to how and why that key was found at exactly the time that it was. Correct.
0: And, and the jury, I was reading your rebuttal uh, closing argument from the Avery trial, and you actually showed the before and after pictures
3: mm-hmm.
0: and showed how the the... Uh, Mr. Colburn had jostled that nightstand or bookcase, whatever it was, Mm -hmm. around Mm -hmm. and displaced those slippers in the process, which also displaced the key that was secreted. And
2: you mentioned, uh, you know, he needed that key
0: to start the car.
2: So to explain what you're talking about here, the, the photos that were shown were the um, the slippers next to this bookcase uh, having been kind of pushed to the left as you as you looked at them. And then as the cabinet was put back in its original position, um, the key then, which fell at the back and was uh, kind of uh, 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 hidden by the cabinet, once the cabinet's put back uh, in its original location, well, there's the key. It kind of magically appears. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least that's uh, that's what the defense uh, wants you to know. But it's not, as I said, not magic at all. Uh, it simply fell down from behind the uh, behind the bookcase. So um, there isn't really any veracity or anything uh, sketchy about that. Although making it wither sure made it look like there was, and sure uh, didn't have any problem uh, suggesting coming right out and saying that uh, Officer Colburn and Link were uh, were. Guilty of uh, having planted evidence on uh, on this man and conspired to have him have him convicted. It was the kind of uh, it was the kind of defamatory statement uh, to mm-hmm. Officer uh, Lincoln, Officer Colburn, uh, that uh, uh, as I understand, uh, just yesterday uh, a lawsuit was filed uh, against Netflix and against uh, the filmmakers <clears throat> by uh, by Andrew Colburn for the defamation and and for all the lies that were uh, told about him. And I'll be very, very interested to see that uh, proceed through, uh, through the court system uh, and to see if in fact, uh, Netflix, the, uh, the filmmakers and others involved in, in perpetrating those falsehoods uh, will be held, uh, held accountable and will have to make uh, uh, reparations uh, to the officer who has clearly been, injured uh, uh, by those statements that have been made about him.
3: Yes,
0: and that's, I'm looking forward to seeing that as well. Uh, And I I would like to see, there are some other names I would like to see added, but um, the attorney, it's his case (laughs) uh, to try and I know some of those names that I would like to see added would hide behind uh, representing their clients and some kind of, you know, immunity, but so be it.
3: <clears throat>
0: so the, the murder investigation begins once the the vehicle's found. And you've got blood on the inside and outside of the vehicle. Don't know who it belongs to, but blood usually is an indicator that something bad has happened to someone. Right. And so that's a, the murder investigation begins. Now, one of the first things was the search in cadaver dogs. Mm -hmm. Who were brought in, and it's funny in making a murder too. Kathleen Zellner talks about these alerts over in the Redond property and in the quarry, and but she doesn't talk about the alerts on uh, Stephen Avery's porch, in Stephen Avery's bathroom, on Teresa's Rav Four, on the garage. (laughs) I mean the and there were cadaver dogs and there were search dogs. So there were scent dogs looking for Teresa's scent. But then there were cadaver dogs who were looking for just general uh decomposition. Correct?
2: Right. I'm gonna to I'm well I'm gonna say this as as clearly as I can. You and everybody else who watched Making the Murderer were shown exactly what they wanted you to see. And nothing I know. more. You were you were spoon fed what they wanted you to see, and so the fact that they made it look like uh, that there was some conspiracy or that there were some shenanigans uh, going on doesn't mean that there was. And at the time we tried this case, and and uh, and 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 when we argued it to to the jury, many of these things were never even raised uh, because they were right. just so far from reality, and <clears throat> they were not supported by any evidence that uh, that was. Uh, 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 presented or, or even developed by the by the defense. And so, um, you know, you can't just make stuff up 10 or 11 years later and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and expect people that know about the case not to push back. That's what I've tried to right. do since Making a Murderer came out in December of 2015, and I'll continue to do, I'll continue to push back on this as long as they keep misrepresenting the facts or as long as they keep saying that there's something wrong with, uh, with this prosecution, uh, because right. we only have a couple of minutes left here, uh, uh, Lisa, do you have any phone calls that we need to go to, or is there anything that I can uh, I can answer in just the remaining minutes that we do have together here tonight?
0: Well, we can go we can go into overtime. That's not a problem. We won't be live, but it'll be recorded and archived. Now, if it's if it's getting too late for you, I apologize. This has just been there's so much information with this case. It's it's. Uh, it it goes the time goes by so quickly, because you've been one of those great guests that we just kind of lose track of where we are. <laughs>
2: well, it's it's dangerous because there's so much, so much. that uh, yeah. that we haven't talked about. We haven't gotten a chance to talk and, about this brain figure printing and we haven't gotten to talk about oh, I know, um, you know, other kinds of allegations that were made, and especially making the murderer uh, two. And I, we're not going to have time to do that because I know we're, we're up against it here and. And, uh, and, and we're up against the time, but as, as, uh, as your audience moves forward and as they learn more about the case and as they dig deeper and they, they, they find sources that aren't Kathleen Zellner or aren't uh, these filmmakers, mm-hmm. when they find real sources uh, of information that uh, came either from transcripts or from police reports, I think they will agree with me that this was an investigation that was done very, very well a prosecution that was put together very competently. And the two people that committed this murder uh, are in prison. One of them, Stephen Avery, will be there the rest of his life and will die in prison right where he belongs. And so uh, I, feel, uh, I feel good about that. I, uh, I'm able to sleep well at night uh, knowing that uh, he's been taken uh, off the street and to the extent that I was able to uh, assist in that process Again, I'm uh, I'm I'm very happy with and, and very proud of uh, of the work that we did uh, uh, in this case. So thanks for uh, thanks for having and, me on, uh, Lisa. I appreciate it. And if you want to take a couple of calls, we can uh, do that off the air here. Well, we
0: actually and, uh, don't. We don't have any calls, it.
2: right? We oh, don't. Good. We
0: don't okay. have any more calls.
3: Yeah.
0: Um Okay. So well, let's let's go ahead and end then talking about and we can. Do it as long as you would like to or need to. The the backlash specifically aimed at you from making a murderer because of the false presentation of information by the filmmakers. Um, I know you, you've mentioned on other forums that you've had, you had negative Yelp reviews that destroyed your law practice. And but, I know yes, I, I see... Murder.
2: Season one came out, so so uh, I had lost uh, I had lost my law practice, or uh, continued to be uh, death threats and, and just horrible things uh, uh, being said about myself and about my wife and about my family, uh, and, uh, and and internet um, uh, activists Trolls. have taken, taken, it taken it upon themselves taking upon themselves to uh, to try to uh, to create more consequence. Uh, for me and uh uh and it's 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 too bad. Uh it's uh it's disturbing uh but it's something that uh you know I'll continue to uh, to live with and to uh, and to push through with. All right.
0: Well I, I do appreciate. It. I thank you for
2: being here. Well and, thanks so uh, much for for having me. I hope it was uh it was uh entertaining and 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 informative and and, uh, and maybe we'll get a chance to, uh, to visit again uh, uh, in, in the future. But uh, if you do get uh, uh, other feedback about this and you're able, to, um, you're able to send that to me or at least uh, let me know uh, how this has been received, I would very much appreciate that also, Lisa. Okay.
0: I certainly will. Uh, we have uh, on that show page that I sent you, uh, there is a Facebook comment section. Okay. And so you can go to that page and, and see if anybody comments. Well, and of not course, so if weird. anything, I'll, oh, you're not I, a you're not a look
2: at, No, well I well I am, but I don't I, I I don't look at what people say about me as a general rule, and so. Okay. there's a, I, there's a reason reason for that, and so what I'll do is if there is a uh, if there's a, a, a general a feeling that you have gotten from this uh, particular podcast. Uh, and and you can share that with me. I'd I'd very much appreciate if you would do that. Okay.
0: I certainly will. Thank you so much.
2: Okay. I do appreciate you your time, e- and this was informative. Have a great evening, and if I uh, or the next time I should say, that I get down to the uh, the New Orleans area, hopefully we can we can get together and and, and chat some more. So I'd be, be oh good. I would
0: like that. Thank you, sir. Okay. Thank you. All, All right. Have a great, have a great night.
2: All right. Take care. Bye
0: bye. Wow. All right, Michael, you're going to have to talk now.
1: Hey, I don't mind talking, but, I, I mean, I was just sitting there listening to that gentleman. I mean, he was amazing, and I do want to throw this out there. I know we had some calls earlier, but uh, I think we may have had some uh, issues with blog talk because all of a sudden, it just, like, dis- they, they disappeared. So, I mean, definitely, mm-hmm. I do apologize uh it wasn't anything intentional or anything of that nature. So I do want to throw that out there. But yeah, uh definitely as far as um, as far as everything goes, it's it's just crazy informative, just the stuff, you know. And that's the thing, people tend to and I'm guilty of it as well, you know, especially with stuff like West Memphis three. I mean, even after talking with you, I still believe that there's, you know, some possibilities, but my mind, Mm -hmm. uh, I was weird in that case. You know, I went from knowing nothing about the case to Brad telling me, Michael, before you just assume they're guilty, watch this documentary. So I flipped a 360 and went completely in the other direction. And now since talking to you, yes, there is doubt that I believe that they, I believe what I believe is the case could have definitely been made stronger, but uh, as far as this goes, you know, it, it's one of those things. People need to – I think I think these documentaries show that people don't like to do their own research. They like Correct. to have stuff spoon-fed to them, and they believe it just automatically.
0: And once they're indoctrinated, it doesn't matter what kind of information you have, what kind of proof, what kind of documentation you have. They are not going to believe it, right? Uh, and right. and I, I, you know, I think I, I think I rubbed Mister Kratz the wrong way. But sometimes I wanted him to directly address some of the allegations, right, that are being made by Zellner in making a murderer about the the evidence and the facts. And mm-hmm. I think he, I, I think he interpreted that as my believing that, even though I don't, and I, I didn't get a chance to tell him. Well, after I, I saw the I episode about I the dog th- searching, I came directly to the computer and found the report for the cadaver and search dog to figure out who was a scent dog and who was cadaver dog and where each alerted. And the majority of the alerts were around places we know Teresa was, her vehicle, Avery's trailer, Avery's garage, Avery's bathroom, you know. (laughs) Right. I think
1: that making the murderer is just a sore subject with him, and I can understand why.
0: I Yes, I I understand that. I I do understand that. In his book, again, no matter what side of the fence that you're on, even if you believe Stephen Avery is innocent, you should read Mr. Kratz's book as well as Mr. Greasebox books. Um, Avery, the case against Stephen Avery and What Making a Murderer Gets Wrong. It's additional information. You can take it. You can do with it. But I'd never read or heard about the note on the door. Right. And when Mr. Krass mentioned that, I thought it suddenly clicked. That's why Bobby saw Teresa go into the trailer that didn't see Avery. And I think one of the other traps that people fall into with these documentaries, especially when they are biased toward innocence, is you get the story, the self serving story from the person who has been convicted. And so they have a motive to give you less than the full story or less than the truth. And you should right. always try and corroborate what they're saying. It's like Rodney Reed saying he has had a relationship with Stacey Stites. There's no corroboration of that.
3: Right. And there are so many right. things That's
0: that really. point against that, that refute it. The first one being is not a single person interviewed between 1996 when Stacy was murdered In 1997, when Rodney Reed was arrested because his DNA was matched to the evidence from Stacey's murder, did anybody ever mention Rodney Reed as a boyfriend or a former boyfriend? And again, as I've said many times before, being a girlfriend with Rodney Reed did not exempt a woman from violence and sexual assault because he sexually assaulted two of his girlfriends
3: oh
1: i completely agree with that wholeheartedly especially you know um looking at the situation from that perspective you know i mean it goes back to something like uh we were taught in the military you know we have briefings just because you're married to somebody doesn't mean you don't technically have to get consent to you know have mm-hmm. relations with them i mean it's just one of those things that you know people don't Think about but you know it is Still you know you can Definitely uh sexually assault Your uh significant other And things like that so mm-hmm. I mean that's something that Just I kind of roll my eyes on But Lisa and let's go I, ahead And uh put a bow on this Well thing.
0: there's one other there's one other little point I want to I want to make Real quick mm-hmm. on uh because making a murder and Kathleen bellner has objected and And expressed uh disagreement with the way the incident with the cat is portrayed and if you're not familiar with Stephen Avery basically what happened is back in 1982 Avery and his two buddies, one was Yonda and one uh, the other one was Peter Dassey who is the father of Brendan Dassey, Bobby Dassey Blaine Dassey and another Dassey boy um, they were all hanging around and they decided they were going to build a bonfire, and apparently the Yonda and Stephen Avery decided they were going to kill a cat.
3: Yonda right. and Avery
0: okay. soaked the cat in gasoline and oil, and then Avery uh, incited Yonda to throw the cat in the fire. Now, you know, in Making a Murderer, Stephen Avery says, oh, we threw the cat over the fire, and it lit up. Like, you know, we Uh had no idea that could happen. And it's not. It's more sinister than that and more cruel. And the fact that whether he threw the cat in the fire himself or he got someone else to do it, it doesn't matter. It's cruelty to an animal that he participated in knowingly, intentionally. And, you know, he's the one... Yonda and Dassey felt bad, and they turned – they went to the police and talked to the police and told the police the truth. And the only reason Steve May pled guilty is because he couldn't get out of it with their statements, especially Yonda, because Yonda was charged as well. Right. So, um, you know, it, it, they make it sound like it was like – they make it sound like he was a little – a kid, a teenager. He was 20.
3: Right. Probably right. close
0: Absolutely. to twenty one. You know. Yeah. And again he knowingly and intentionally participated in a heinous act of animal cruelty to his family cat. It was not a stray cat hanging around the hanging around the uh junkyard bothering the family's chickens. It wasn't a feral cat. That he tried to be, befriend and it scratched him and made him mad. It was his family cat, right?
1: And I mean, so, they say that
3: that's
1: uh, are uh, sure signs that uh, somebody's kind of psychotic.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: You can be if you can be that cruel to an animal, you can be that cruel to a person, and usually you graduate because eventually being that cruel to an animal doesn't do it for you anymore. Right. And another thing I I want to mention is since Kathleen Zellner's all, you know, all focused on the porn that allegedly was found on Bobby Dassey's computer, um, she should know that her client, Stephen Avery had quite the porn collection himself. Uh Uh-huh. So if that's an indicator of potential murderer. Uh she's going to have a long road road to hoe when when somebody brings up that stuff.
3: Right. Right. Though, right. Um
0: and you know that's another thing evidence that couldn't be used against Avery in his criminal trial, she's now using that same type of evidence to point fingers at other suspects and accuse uh-huh. innocent people. And that right. just isn't right. So, but I guess that is, that is enough. My outrage is, is dying (laughs) down.
1: (laughs) I understand. I understand. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. uh, That's the thing about these things, you know, uh, there is, you know, these documentaries, uh, you know, Paradise Lost, uh, Making a Murderer and all of these, they, they do what they're supposed to do. They, they, elicit an emotional response from both sides
0: mm. they do Absolutely. so all right well i i guess that is that is the end of our night can uh-huh. i do the outro now are you ready are you sure uh-huh.
1: okay i promise i won't interrupt so, you six times this time.
0: so i can get it in the first take
1: <laughs> i got
0: you. all right All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. Michael, (laughs) Santa is going to leave reindeer poop and snowman poop in your stocking.
1: (laughs) Okay. I promise. I'll be good.
0: Okay. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook, go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com, or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. We'll be taking a two-week break for Christmas and New Year's, and we want to wish everyone a safe and happy holiday season. We'll be back on January 8, 2019 for Episode 434, State of Texas versus Cameron Todd Willingham. On February 17, 2004, Cameron Todd Willingham was executed for the murder of his daughters Amber, three and one-year-old twins Carmen and Cameron. In 2009, the state of Texas ordered a re-examination of the arson evidence used to convict Willingham and the Chicago Tribune, and I believe New York Times published a lengthy article reexamining the case. Efforts to judicially exonerate Willingham based on new expert opinions were unsuccessful. We'll be talking about the case against Willingham, the evidence that was ignored by experts seeking to posthumously exonerate Willingham, and his profanity-laced final statement. Everyone, again, have a safe and happy holiday season. Don't drink and drive. Call your mama Call an Uber, call a Lyft, call a taxi. Don't call the police, although some jurisdictions they will give you a free ride home. Be safe, or a first,
1: take first care. Ride with the drunk thing.
0: <laughs> well, you if you're if you're nice about it, they'll take you home. Uh, just don't right. call them pigs. And uh, <laughs> everybody have a safe and happy holiday season. And thank you, and good night.